I think Kevin McCarthy, he thought, okay, if I win over a few key members inside the House Freedom Caucus, I'm good. But he didn't think that the margins were going to be this small, where five people could cut him off. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm John Kelly. It's Tuesday, December 27th. Today, I'm joined by Tara Palmieri, who has all the latest news and dish on what's really going on in the battle for House Speakership, where Kevin McCarthy fights the saboteurs and now has an alternative within his own party in the form of Steve Scalise. And then we discuss the newest fly on Joe Biden's shoulder. Yes, Marianne Williamson is probably not a serious contender to dethrone the president, but she may be the first tiny crack in the dam that allows other ambitious Democrats to join the 2024 fray. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. I'm here today with Tara Palmieri, who is discussing the once unfathomable, now somewhat inevitable, fall of Kevin McCarthy. The speaker-in-waiting, who now finds himself felled by the five MAGA saboteurs and his own homie, Lieutenant Steve Scalise, who is emerging as a viable contender. Tara, this boggles my mind. I feel like when you first started reporting on this, I almost didn't take it seriously. And if I assumed that Kevin McCarthy was exactly the sort of Trumpish, believe in nothing, power for the sake of power suit, who perfectly, perfectly personified where the Republican Party was now. But it seems like the guy really is nearly cooked as we head into this early January vote. Give me the latest that you're hearing. I mean, McCarthy would have been fine if they had won more seats. But he's got guys that, you know, he supported challengers to. He's got people like Matt Gates who just really hate him. And he's got just enough of them to be tanked, to really be tanked. And these are only the people who are public. They claim that there are a bunch of silent no votes with them. But really, if the public no votes, if they want to, they can tank a speakership. Now, that requires that every single Democrat shows up and none of them vote present and throw him a line and that they all, you know, vote. The point is that all the Democrats have to show up for Kevin McCarthy to uh, be truly tanked by these five 
this would have never happened. Like, I, I think I wrote this back in the summer. We wrote it. You had that great headline that you put in there, uh, his red rum moment. But he was telling people, if I don't pick up more than 10 seats, I'm fucked. And that's exactly what happened. Now it's becoming more real. His number two, Steve Scalise, who's always been there, always been ready for him to fall, basically, because they all are. I mean, any lieutenant is ready for the, the boss to fall. In the case of Scalise, the second that Matt Gates and the others said, we take Scalise, it's changed the game because now there actually are two horses in this race. And for a long time, they said, you know, you can't take down somebody without another option. And all the options they had floated before were just not viable, real choices. Most of them weren't even in Congress. One was like Newt Gingrich, for example. And now they've got a real person who they say they'd support. And he's a unity candidate who the moderates would support, too. I mean, I think it's really hard right now for Kevin McCarthy to essentially run against his lieutenant. But it's also personal. That That's one of the details that, that is so interesting to me. Scalise's politics aren't altogether different from McCarthy's politics. In many ways, um, he's just a, a friendlier f- uh, figure to someone like Matt Gaetz, who, who's essentially signaled through his recent media tour that Scalise is at least not Kevin. And that seems to be the biggest advantage. And, uh, you know, on some political level, that's kind of preposterous, isn't it? Yeah, it is in some ways. I mean, I do think it's kind of interesting. And um, this didn't make it into the piece. But, you know, Scalise was caught on tape saying that Matt Gates should be prosecuted. <laughs> and it's something that, you know, Scalise apologized in privately. And then publicly, Matt Gates demanded an apology in front of the conference. And, and he got that apology from Steve Scalise. But like, you know, you got to think like, it is really personal and, and still... He would rather have Steve Scalise because he's not Kevin McCarthy. So you've got to wonder, like, how much does this person really hate Kevin McCarthy? The others do as well. I was told from someone who's close to those five and is, you know, included into the deliberations that the motion to vacate the thing that they've been sort of holding over Kevin McCarthy's head this whole time as a way to really have power over him. It's basically the ability of one member to call for a vote for the speaker to be removed. I mean, it's kind of nuts to have right, just, the, the suicide vest, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just one member could have like a bad day, wake up and be like, hey, let's call for a motion to vacate <laughs> the speaker. Um, but that's what happened with John Boehner. I mean, Mark Meadows was the one who basically triggered it. And while they didn't have a vote, he knew what was coming and it caused him to step down before the vote. But, you know, it's a really powerful tool, especially ahead of like debt ceiling negotiations which will probably come up in the summer and just any sort of negotiations to have that hanging over his head. It basically takes power from him. But I was told with Scalise, they don't feel like there's a trust issue. They've always said that they don't trust Kevin McCarthy. They think that with Steve Scalise, they trust him and they wouldn't make the agreement of the motion to vacate changing to just one member able to trigger it as a precondition for supporting Scalise. And that changes everything, really. You lined up the sort of procedural play-by-play here in, in, in this great piece you wrote about uh, Scalise's speaker weapon. Uh, all the all the credit of that pun goes to you. Um, essentially, if, if you could distill it, besides the personal animus, what does this cohort of Congress want? What can Scalise potentially offer that McCarthy never could, but besides, you know, him just being the, the, the denizen of his own skin? I think that they just feel like they trust him more. One of the big complaints about Kevin McCarthy is that like he's kind of he constantly switches positions all the time. They feel like they can't ever pin him down. And I just think like when it comes down to it, they just like Scalise more. They trust him more. He's not more conservative, though, in terms of his voting record. It's basically the same. 
I think Kevin McCarthy, like he thought, okay, if I win over a few key members inside the House Freedom Caucus, I'm good. One of them being Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we won over, and who got into a fight with Lauren Boebert on Twitter because Lauren Boebert said she's against Kevin McCarthy. And Marjorie Taylor Greene's like literally you know, fighting for Kevin McCarthy, never thought you would ever see something like that, right? And probably because he had her on stage next to him when he, you know, offered his commitment to America and gave her that prime seating. And also he's going to put her back on some committees that she was removed from. But, you know, and then the other person he thought, okay, if I can get Jim Jordan on my side by giving him the oversight committee, making him chairman of the oversight committee, that would be a key ally. And so, you know, he thought those two, a few others, change some rules, give them a little bit more power, I'll be good. Right. But he didn't think that the margins were going to be this small where five people could cut him off. I mean, there's really nothing you can do when you don't have the votes. I mean, if they just if they had one more seats and it's kind of interesting because like one of the seats that they lost is the seat that was held by Peter Mayer, who I'll be, you know, interviewing for this week. That should have been a Republican seat. Right. But because they handed the keys to the kingdom to Trump, Trump took out Peter he put in some MAGA guy instead, and he ultimately lost because the voters just don't want crazy. You also got to wonder if like Kevin McCarthy thought hard enough about his alliance with Trump and how that might backfire as well in terms of his numbers. Right. To, to many, this is sort of the political justice that uh, McCarthy deserves. Oh, totally. Anyway, Tara, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the problems bewitching Joe Biden. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. 
The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life all right tara i want to talk to you now about this bizarre sort of unspoken choreography that's taking place on the left you've been reporting about this for months joe biden Hasn't said yet that he's running for re-election, but all signs point to a, a posturing in his camp that they are getting ready, that they're going to take their time, but that they're preparing. Everyone seems to be in lockstep about that. And yet all these financially well-armed Democrats like Gavin Newsom and J.B. Pritzker seem ready at the hilt in case something either changes and Biden maybe has a health issue or a change of heart, maybe the fear of, of how the uh, Republicans could go after his family to change his mind or someone breaks the seal. Uh, I think that's a, the phrase that, that you've picked up in your reporting, meaning that someone decides to challenge him, especially if Biden is no longer seemingly taking on Donald Trump. And then it could be another free for all, you know, multiple people on the stage situation. You reported last week on the first challenger, uh, sort of a, a, a fly on his shoulder. But give me the state of play on who else is eyeing 2024 as potentially the year for them. Well, you've got these governors, right, um, in waiting, and there are J.B. Pritzker, Gavin Newsom, even Phil Murphy. And you got some senators like. Amy Klobuchar, you've got Pete Buttigieg. I mean, you have obviously Kamala Harris, but she wouldn't challenge him. You know, Cory Booker, maybe. So like all of these teams, the first few I mentioned more aggressively building machines right now, political machines, making sure they have the staff, infrastructure. J.B. Pritzker has the greatest advantage because he can just fund it himself. Gavin Newsom probably is at a big disadvantage, mainly because his donors are so similar to Joe Biden. So he could never really challenge Joe Biden if that was a thing that he would do, although he would never do that, I don't think. But there is sort of a feeling that like if there's one thing that's true on both sides, like you have a moment in politics and if you don't seize it, you really can't go back. And it's always the strongest when you're a governor, you're at the height of your popularity, you have a press corps, you seem like an executor, you have some things to talk about. But being a former governor, I think is really hard to run as a former governor for president. It just seems like far away. You're not in the spotlight. You're not making national news. 
And so I think there's like a feeling that this 2024 bench and waiting is sort of restless. They want to know what's going on with Biden. But like if Biden, if for some reason he's seeming politically weak, say there's like another Afghanistan type moment, there might be an opportunity to like actually challenge him. But it would take a serious challenger to jump in and break the seal. My sources told me that, but the break the seal idea, I mean, they were thinking, oh, it would be better if it was a a progressive. Then it would allow the others to jump in saying, well, if this person thinks they can run against Biden, then I surely can and blah, blah, blah. They jump in and they would eventually, they would challenge him. Obviously, it's not good for the party. Although some might say that running Joe Biden against, you know, Ron DeSantis, who may win the nomination, who's 44 years old, might be an impossible task as well. So there's sort of just a feeling like, okay, let's see what's going on, but let's not discount the idea. He may not drop out, but there may be an opening to primary him. Right. And and this reminds me a little bit, I suppose, of Harry Reid saying to a a young two-year experienced uh, U.S. Senator Barack Obama that he had a moment to take on Hillary Clinton, who, while not a sitting president, was was about the the, the closest thing resembling one imaginable. It is funny, you, you point out that this unspoken rule of presidential politics, which is just sort of hilarious that basically you've got to wait your turn and get in line unless you sense it's your moment and then you can do whatever the hell you want, you know, and, and all the rules are out the window and everyone is out for them, themselves here. I agree that there are actually more sort of known unknowns in the 2024 picture than we realize. It seems on the right, like uh, Trump is very weak. It, it seems Axios has reported recently, in fact, that he's about to have to prepare for another larded up debate stage as, as all the sort of Pompeo, Pence, Haley's of the world are looking for their lanes. The calculus will change as the Democrats, as they inevitably do, kind of react to the Republican picture here. So it's not unfathomable that what seems, you know, inevitable, as you put it, the the, the Biden inevitability mythology really does crumble over the next uh, nine to 12 months. I'm wondering on the left, though, particularly between Pritzker and Newsom, who seem like the most at least well-capitalized competitors, does this just come down to money between big state governors who are both sort of progressive enough but highly functional with with, uh, nice name ideas? Is there anything that differentiates them? It, It seems like they're sort of occupying the same lane. Yeah, I know. It's hard to say what really differentiates the two of them. Um, it could just come down to like likability and ability to communicate. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there are some concerns about like Gavin Newsom playing well in the South or like, you know, across middle America being, you know, coastal elite. J.B. Pritzker is a billionaire, but, you know, he sort of looks like an everyday guy. because He's kind of <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. You know, so there's there's always like there's these kind of like un- intangible things in politics, like the whole like who would you rather have a beer with? Totally. Again, they're both riding high, especially Newsom after he won the recall. It's just like you said, there's there's a moment. Everyone's sort of chomping up the bit. I mean, how could you not when you've got a candidate that just turned 80? I hate to say it, but like it's just these are the realities of politics. The funny thing is that actually ever since I wrote about the inevitability, because, you know, Democrats, there's a kind of a difference. Democrats in D.C. are like Biden's our guy getting behind Biden old, reliable, he's coming through, right? And then outside of D.C., in the state capitals and supporters of those other candidates, they're the ones who are kind of like, is he really our guy? They haven't drank the Kool-Aid the same way that Democrats in D.C. have drank the Kool-Aid for Biden. They're still kind of questioning him. 
then, you know, I, I obviously um, got some reporting on a new challenger who's emerged. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to bring this up. So you reported that Marion Williamson is entering the race and, and is sniffing around. Uh, certainly she made the debate stage in 2020, but is she a considerable enough foe to break the seal or is she sort of sub-seal? She's sub-seal, I would say. But you never know. Like, here's the other thing. If the electorate is so clamoring against Biden as they are in the polling. The polling shows that the electorate does not want Democrats, more Democrats than even Republicans, don't want Biden to run for re-election as compared to Republicans who don't want Trump to run for re-election. I think she is sub-seal, but I do ultimately think like the louder the noise is against Biden, she could create a sideshow. I don't know. It, it sounds kind of fantasy casting to imagine her really having a lot of impact. She probably won't make it onto the debate stage. Definitely not. They're not going to do a debate because, you know, the DNC decides that. But who knows? You know, she she raised money last time. She made some noise. She made it into two debates. And just having her on the sidelines throwing small potatoes, you know, it's not great. <laughs> well, one of my favorite uh, reported details of late in Puck is your expose that Pritzker hired Raphael Warnock's political mastermind. It just gives you a, a sense of how seriously he and others are, are contemplating this. And uh, sometimes when the moment doesn't come to you, you have to make the moment. And it seems like uh, he and others are getting right up to the brink and hoping that kinetically they can put something together. But we'll see. Anyway, Tara, thank you for joining me and I'll, uh, I'll see you in the Slack. Thanks, John. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 